This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me. It's podcasts for the weird at heart. You're listening to Keep Screaming, a horror podcast from two best friends dissecting horror movies one by one. My name is Ryan Larson. And my name is B-Bass. Every two weeks, we will bring you a brand new episode where we dissect a slasher film from top to bottom. We will look at the movie as a whole, going over the story, the casting, music choices, go kill by kill, and then rank it on how it succeeds as a slasher film. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ScreamingCast or by searching Keep Screaming. You can find me at B not B, that's B-E-E, not B-E-A, and Ryan at Ryan Larson. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Castbox, or online at podpeople.me or keepscreaming.com. This week we are dissecting 1980s Friday the thirteenth, directed by Sean S. Cunningham. But first our pop culture check-in. For new listeners, our pop culture check-in is a chance for you to get to know what we've been watching, reading, and consuming outside of our movie this week, as well as life updates. And podcast updates. Yeah, we have lots of podcast updates. Oh, and okay, so this is round two of recording this episode. We actually recorded it, I don't know, two nights ago, three nights ago, and the audio was fucked. So we have to redo it. Yes. So if we sound like really put together this episode, it's because we've already done this before. Yeah, we're not going to be like this all the time. (laughs) Yeah, don't get used to it. Uh, B, you have... The biggest news. So I have uh, decided, so I went back to work um, three weeks ago now. Um, I had my son in April, um, and at eight weeks I went back to work, and I hated it, (laughs) and uh, decided that uh, I wanted to figure out a way to stay home with him. So I am going to be doing freelance design full-time, so I will be doing that a few avenues, um, and I will be pushing that on social media here my last day at my job right now is going to be this upcoming friday and after that um i'm going to be pushing my freelance and other projects a bunch um it also means that i'm going to be dedicating a lot more time to this podcast um so uh we have some things in the works um because of that time allotment and we will share that as they start coming out but just know that um keep screaming is becoming more of a part-time job for me instead of a thing that ryan and i do when we get a chance i mean we're pretty good about every two oh yeah i mean we're consistent but i mean like some some weeks we're like oh shit did we watch the movie we gotta get this and like we gotta get it (laughs) we have two hours to record on sunday and that's it um yeah so i didn't quit any job but it for your longtime listeners B just popped open her yes. bubbly. I have a beer. We're, we're doing this in style tonight. Um, for longtime listeners, you might know that I run Ghastly Grinning, which uh, ghastlygrinning.com is my horror website. It's, um, it's a horror media hub, and it, it used to be news, reviews, lists, all sorts of things. Um, I'm unfortunately spread a little thin, and a lot of my writers have gone on to do bigger and better things, which is super amazing and, and like really fortunate for them, and I celebrate them. And um, what it does mean, though, is I just don't have all of the uh, people that I used to have to keep the website aloft. So 
Um, I spoke to the other founders of the site and we decided the best thing to do would be to reduce the site to just reviews um, so we can still celebrate films in a positive light. But also we wanted to continue the spirit and um, the feeling of the site and what we're going to do is a podcast instead. So um, the Gasly Grinding podcast will be launching soon. Um, it's exciting. I actually did my first interview for it today with Sam Weinman, who is um, a queer horror director. He's doing the new horror doc for the queer horror doc for Shudder. And he has a piece in um, December, which is a Christmas horror anthology coming out at the end of the year with a ton of different people attached to it. Um, so... We are going to do that instead. I'm going to be like the solid host and I'll have a rotating um, cast of the other writers from the website on the show. So I'm really excited about that. But just like B, what it means is I can kind of focus more attention to keep streaming um, because it is something that we truly love and are passionate about and have decided that we want to do more with. Um, so yeah, you'll see a lot more, I think, from both of us and just from um, the podcast in general. Um, and just trying to like really get it out there and bring some really cool stuff out for you guys, whether that's like merch or like special episodes, things like that. Um, one of the first things we're doing actually is um, a summer playlist. So when I went and visited uh, our producer Brennan in Southern California, he was he pointed out to me that B and I do a lot of things seasonally, like. We keep a lot of the movies we watch, um, especially on the show, seasonal. But I was like telling him, I was like, that's how we are with everything. Um, we That's a year-round thing. Um, we wa- Like all the movies are kind of based on seasons. And even like the music we listen to mm-hmm. and the TV shows we rewatch are all like kind of seasonal. And so I was like... Yeah, kinda... they put us in the right mood. Yeah. I gotta have the weather to go with my... Exactly. So like pop is kind of a summer country. We listen to mm-hmm. a lot more country in the summer. We grew up in a small country town. So like not ashamed to say that we listen to country music. Um, I, I oh, personally... Oh no, I'm going to a country... My son gets to go to his first show yeah we're gonna go see justin moore next friday we're so excited that's next friday yeah it's next friday already um it's extra exciting for me and because um it's gonna be liam's first show and my husband walked down the aisle to a justin moore song and so i all of you you're gonna cry yeah i'm gonna cry man oh god i'm not gonna be able to handle it i'm like bursting with excitement i can't wait so we love country Yes, and um, we love seasonal stuff. And we Mm -hmm. thought it'd be fun. I was like telling B, one of the things I've really enjoyed about the podcast and some of the best feedback I think we've got from listeners is the pop culture check-ins and also not just that, but like how when we're diving into movies, B and I really let like our passion for things outside of the genre show, Mm -hmm. like how much we bring up like, I mean, Kevin Williamson, obviously, but um, but, yeah, but like teen dramas and like pop music and and Harry Potter and like all well, these yeah, different things. Yeah, because that's our lens. We're mm-hmm. analyzing these movies based on their merits of slashers, but we also have to make note that, you know, we have a very specific lens that we view these films through, and that's based on, you know, our gender and age and, you know, everything. Mm-hmm. Um, our pop culture our, obsessions. Yeah, our interests, mm-hmm. and that skews how we feel about these films, and we don't want to ignore that because often they skew in a way that's going to be you know not super objective too Mm -hmm. so that's one of the reasons why we like you guys to know about our other stuff because um then when you realize why we're so obsessed with like i know what you did last summer you know why because we're a 
well, you're essentially a you're a '90s kid. Yeah. We're both '90s 80, kids. Yeah. '90s kids and, for sure. And like, it shows. That's you know. Yeah, and like one of the coolest experiences for me ever was at Frightmare when um, one of our listeners gave me a pop punk patch because he was like, "You're one of the only other horror fans I know who loves pop punk," and I was like, "This is so cool that yeah. like you knew that about me." And so we are going to do a summer playlist for you guys that B and I will pick songs, and that will be available on Spotify and Apple Music soon i think we want to get it done probably before our next episode or right in there so you can enjoy it for the summer for sure Uh, but that's just one of the things we're working on just something that gives you a little more of a peek into what we're into beyond slashers and beyond horror um but now we can move on to our regular pop culture check-in uh so i did keep myself a little busy at the theater with recent releases annabelle comes home um came out and i actually saw that opening night um i did a little treat yourself i had to do like a big renovation at work and i got out in time for the last showing of um annabelle goes home or comes home on opening night uh so gary doberman directed it's his directorial debut he wrote um the it movies and he's working on the new are you afraid of the dark movie for nickelodeon um if you're a fan of like the mythos and like the kind of conjuring verse or wannaverse whatever you want to call it um it's super fun it's just a really fun like haunted house movie um that also is still really funny and there's still a lot of heart and spirit in it um it focuses it's kind of like a bottle episode of tv show where they get trapped in the house so they're just in the house which i really love one set locations for the most part mm-hmm. and then it's big all, fan of those yeah in and all it, genres and it's great too because um, Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga return as the Warrens, but they're only in like the first twenty minutes of the movie, the last five, because they're they're like go away on a case. So yeah. it's all about the girls being trapped in the house, and they find like smart ways to introduce like new characters. Like there's a boy uh, love interest from across the street who's interested in the babysitter, and all. So there's still like it pulls at some heartstrings, and it still has a lot of heart and humor to it. But still, Doberman is definitely like in the camp of james wan where he can craft some really solid jump scares um so if you enjoy the series or maybe even if you don't like it doesn't fit at all really with the other two um like i really enjoyed annabelle uh creation origins what's the second one called creation Creation. yeah Yeah. i enjoyed that movie a lot but this still feels very different it's less of a slow burn like this movie really hits the like it hits the gas and then just stays on it for like a solid 45 50 minutes uh the other one i went and saw was toy story 4 which um, i mean everyone knows what toy story 4 is mm-hmm. uh it's a really solid movie uh the way i was kind of explaining it to people was when it was announced i kind of was in the same boat as a lot of critics and even like my friends were like why do we need this because toy story 3 wraps things up so perfectly um but what toy story 4 does is kind of takes that perfect wrapping and puts a little bow on it um it's very much a woody movie uh, the other characters are not big focuses. Uh, mostly it focuses on the new characters and the returning. So like Bo Peep is a huge part of it. Um, and then um, uh, Duke Kaboom, that's Keanu Reeves' character, is fantastic. And then um, Key and Peele play Duck and Rabbit. Um, and they're like carnival anim- stuffed animals that you can win in like a carnival game. But they're hilarious um they kind of steal every scene that they're in like both all all three of them um i was telling b like one of the great things i love about the keanu character is i was reading up on the development of the character when they were doing table reads keanu reeves started like 
posing at the table and they're like what are you doing and he was like well i just feel like you know he would pose because he's like an evil can evil like knock off and I so can they just, like see him sitting at the table saying that too oh just, yeah like, i can see him like so literally casual. like posing too yeah. while saying it casually um no, B and I have discussed guy. this numerous times. Not a good actor at all. No. Just extremely likable for some yeah. reason. Like, a very charming guy, but you're like, you're not a good actor. Um, but voice talent-wise, I mean, he was great, and the character is wonderful. So uh, I think it's a worthy addition to the Toy Story franchise. I think this really needs to be it, for sure. Um, the other one I'll touch on before we get to the one we both watched, uh, I did watch Dumbo, which was Tim Burton's live-action adaptation of the Disney classic. Um, classic in quotes, because I don't really like the original Dumbo very much. Um, it's, that doesn't mean it's not a classic. Sure, in my eyes. Um, it's it's very Tim Burton. It's visually stunning. Um, it's kind of all over the place. Uh, Dumbo looks awesome. Colin Farrell does a good job. Michael Keaton just can't decide what accent he wants to land on in the entire movie. Um, and I think Danny DeVito, honestly, is probably the best performance of the whole thing. Um, it looks beautiful, and there's lots of really cool set pieces because it's all set on, like, Coney Island, um, and they do, like, a lot of cool stuff with that. But it's so fucking sad. It is, like, so sad. I can't... Like, I don't think B can watch it right now at Mm-mm. all because it's like, you know, mom and kid sad, which yeah, for no, her no. is a super, like, yeah, I, can't I almost offered her to watch Pet Cemetery, and I was like, uh-uh. just kidding, you can't watch this fucking movie right now. Yeah, uh, yeah, if you guys can recall, I read the book, like, right when I found out I was pregnant. That was dumb. Yeah. Um, I'm good for a while. I have to still have to avoid those. I couldn't really watch horror when I was pregnant. Now I, it's fine, but I just can't watch anything sad yeah and dumbo is and i can't watch anything that's family related sad because then i'm like no no it's literally it's literally a child being separated from Uh -uh. his mother Mm -mm. like you would break down yeah man i can't even go to work in the morning yeah so no uh so i was like yeah i don't watch dumbo either but um i think it's better than most of tim burton's recent efforts it did okay we looked it up it like broke even the budget was huge um because it's a lot of cg uh, and then, get this, this is the movie we both watched. Out yeah. of all of those movies, and trust me, B is a huge Toy Story fan. Uh, so, yeah, massive. And, you know, horror fans and everything. But out of all those movies, the movie that we both happened to see was Murder Mystery, the yes. Adam Sandler, Jennifer Aniston, Netflix original movie. Yes. Yeah, um, of course. Well, okay, Netflix reported, which, you know, take that for what you will, because they won't share their numbers with anybody, but like 30 million people watched it in the first three days yeah Um, every one of those that was is all those adam sandler movies are like ridiculous streaming numbers yeah but this one was good it It is it's genuinely like yeah enjoyable so the people who directed it are like one of the guys i saw that he did like um the director is kyle newichek and He's directed like Workaholics, Community, Parks and Rec, Happy Endings. Yeah, Yeah. so a lot of of like great comedies um, and more modern comedies. Um, So, yeah, super fun. It's like got a clue storyline. In my opinion, it's the best of the Adam Sandler um, Netflix ones that have come out. Easily. I haven't, I've been disappointed because, you know, Adam Sandler is pretty hit and miss for me, but when I do really enjoy his stuff and I have a lot of nostalgia for a lot of his older things and I even liked, you know, some of the things that he came out with in like 
the late aughts, like bedtime stories oh, and yeah, stuff that's like cute. that. Yeah, and, yeah, I like that. Um, Do you so, like Blended? Because um, you love Drew. It was okay. Yeah. yeah. It's the weakest of it's his three. It's the weakest three. of the ones with Drew yeah. because Fifty First Dates and The Wedding Singer are perfect movies. Yep. Um, and I will fight you on that. Uh, but yeah, he, him and Jennifer Aniston are great. Mm-hmm. Um, they work really well together. Um, and so, yeah, this one was super enjoyable. So if you've been kind of iffy on his newer stuff or any of the Netflix releases and you like the more heartwarming um, ones that are more about relationships and yeah. that, that's what this is. Yeah. And, and it's fun because it's like action and they're like overseas. and Yeah, it's got Luke Evans in yeah. it. And he's really good. And um, it's it's actually a pretty solid little mystery too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, what I liked about it was sometimes Adam Sandler can do like this like brand of humor where he just gets like loud and explosive. I hate that movie Anger Management because the whole movie oh, is yeah. just that. Mm-hmm. Happy Gilmore I like because I it plays into the story and there's still heart in that movie. Yeah. Like the whole grandma story and everything. And also again, like we talked last time we recorded this, we talked about he plays well with his female leads and that had Julie Bowen and like she's enjoyable mm-hmm. in that movie. And and so this is a very subdued Sandler. Like a lot of the jokes are because they're between the two of them. Yeah. So a lot of the jokes are like kind of hush whispers and like one like really smart. And, yeah, have to one-liners. do with the relationship. Yeah. yeah. So it's and that it, dynamic. Yeah. So it's just really good. And again it kinda of, like we said, it just he works best when he has a great female lead and like that's why his movies with drew are so good mm-hmm. um so it reminded me a lot of those like yeah. that that kind of humor so definitely worth checking out yes. like for sure out of all of his netflix stuff easily my favorite yeah and i didn't really check out too much um like i said just going back to work it's got me really crazy my family is in town to help me watch my son while i'm at work um and so my house has been full of people um, which has been amazing, but also mean, means that, you know, I'm not, I'm spending, you know, quality family time um, and not, you know, watching anything. Um, so I did get a chance to slowly still chipping away at the Child's Play series. So I finally checked out Bright of Chucky. Um, and so I I liked it. I, I did. I liked the shift. I think uh, the the comedic shift is like the first one that really does that and really plays into that comedy. I think Tiffany's great. Jennifer mm-hmm. Tilly, I love her. Mm-hmm. I was obsessed with her in Liar Liar as a kid. Yeah. Um, and I have a big thing for voices. Um, and so obviously she has an incredibly um, recognizable and distinct voice. Um, so, and that was one of the reasons why I was obsessed with her as a kid because I loved her voice. Um, She's great in this, super fun as Tiffany. Um, the Tiffany Chucky dynamic makes um, Chucky a more interesting character to me, um, especially after the third one where I think it kind of dipped. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Katherine Heigl's interesting in this role. Um, <laughs> John Ritter in one of his last yeah, movie roles, film roles. Yeah, playing her like commanding uncle. It's very campy and oh big time and like over the top and usually that's that's like a fine line for me but it plays it well um and so i did i did enjoy it and of course because it came out like 98 um around there 99 something like that um i love it for that like millennium nostalgia as well yeah Um, it satirizes it purposely satirizes the genre and it does so i think in a really like 
good way. Yes, I agree. Not always a smart way, but no. like a fun way. No, it's definitely not the smartest humor. No. At all. But um, like going to like your voices thing too, like there is something to be said because once they're both dolls, like Brad Dorif and Jennifer Tilly's voices in those dolls make that movie. Oh, Because if for it was sure. someone else, it wouldn't work. No. Like, and it's, they both, like, yeah. for some reason, they just both bounce off each other so well. Yeah, and I'm chipping through Seed of Checking. I'm almost done. It's one of the, I watch movies in, like, ten increments. I get to watch, like, 20 minutes at a time at this point. Um, and so far, um, I do like it, and I especially love her part in it. So I'll talk about that more Um next episode. I need to rewatch it. Yeah. After I listened to the Queer Wolf episode, yeah. I think I just need a different lens. No, and so and I I'm having that lens going into it, sort of viewing it more as like um a queer horror piece. Um Yeah, for those of and you seeing it in more of a positive light the mm-hmm. representation they're giving versus like what are these choices they're making? Right. Um which helps and I'm excited to listen to that Queer Wolf's episode and also Horror Queers. Um, which is another great podcast. Um, also just did an episode on, on uh, it. And Joe so. Lipset and Trace Thurman yes. do that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who don't know, Don Mancini, who created the Chucky character and has written every movie except the newest one, but he's written all of the like Chucky movies and directed the last two, so Colt and Curse, um, is openly gay. And um, yes. so that is... I think important when you go into Seed of Chucky to know that. That it's coming from somebody in a part of the community yes. and not from the outside and trying to write for not it. Not mocking it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that definitely changes the perspective too because I definitely did not know that when I first saw it. Right. Like at all. I, I actually only recently kind of learned, like I'd say in the last couple of years that Mancini was. Um, and it's not like it was a secret or anything. I just yeah. didn't do my, my research. So yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, and that I did rewatch Jurassic World, um, which just reminder that's great. It's so good. And here's my PSA to check out the sequel, Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom, because um, I thought it was really good, and I thought it was the Jurassic World series is like action adventure first, and like monster movie horror second, mm-hmm. and I feel like. Uh, Fallen Kingdom blurs that a little bit more and has some really terrifying scenes and scenes that remind me of like when I watched Jurassic Park like two in the theater as a kid um, and the opening scene in that one is like oh that is scared the shit out of me scared the shit out of me yeah and so the little ones uh uh-huh yeah 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 and so and i remember being in the theater watching that because i loved jurassic park and i begged my parents to take me and god i don't know i was really young like barely could get the seat to stay down young i was so well yeah because i was young when i came out so um but i as a horror fan i really really like what they did with fallen kingdom and i think if you go into that not expecting it to be this like nostalgic homage and perfectly fit in with the series and really sort of go a little darker and meaner you'll have more fun with it i'm going to watch it i've been putting it off i was determined to never watch it because um so two people in my life are like love every movie 
and one is our friend Jared, our mutual friend Jared. Um, that's the one who worked with B at the record store, and then my mom. And their like their bar starts at like everything's a B plus, and like so if if they give something like a like an A, I'm like, well, yeah, that's not like much higher for you. But when I talk to them about this movie, Jared, who at least has always been like, yeah, it's pretty good. Like he literally said, it's okay. And then as the conversation continued, he said, I really wish I'd seen a different movie. And then my mom, who also loves everything, I was like, mom, how was that movie? She literally looked at me and gave a thumbs down and then went, and I've never even seen my mom do that in my entire life. So I was very turned off to the idea of seeing it. Um, But again, I mean, and part of, like, why I love this podcast and why I love my website is, like, approaching things with a different lens and perspective. So, you know, would be saying, like, go into it thinking, like, it's a horror movie and it's not, like, this action-adventure movie. I think I, if I can do that, I, I might enjoy it more. I mean, the, it's an interesting conversation because there are two movies, Jurassic Park and Jaws, I think it brought up a lot as, like, are these horror movies? Because they're kind of action-adventure movies, but, like especially jaws motherfucker is a is a horror movie and then jurassic park is i consider the jurassic park series horror especially the first two it turns into action after well, like what there's only three right four if you got world and the newest one well okay but the original series right the yeah. original series like two definitely has its moment like the entire scene with the raptors in the mm-hmm. field is very scary and the first one is like a full-on monster movie and like it it definitely doesn't fit into the modern construct of horror but if that movie came out in the fucking 50s it would have terrified the shit out of people um it's a it's a monster movie for sure Mm -hmm. so i'm gonna try to go in with that lens remove myself from the because like jurassic world to me the first one was like this feels like a fast and the furious movie like that kind of like action it plays the beats of the first Mm -hmm. one with nostalgia but it also is like action adventure very big mm-hmm. very blockbustery. oh yes yeah. yes so if i can go into it i'm gonna try so i'll report back on falling kingdom i own it so feel free to borrow it okay like on blue yeah on oh, blue okay yeah, we'll watch yeah. It. i liked it that much guys wow okay that's a ringing endorsement <laughs> yeah i can't wait for the hate i'm gonna get yeah um so the movie we're covering this week is it's one of the big boys we're very excited um yeah, she didn't read the title of the episode. Yeah, um, so we have covered one kind of of the like. In my mind, there's like pillars that hold up the slasher, like at the the slasher genre, and there's like basically it's like Scream, Halloween, Texas, Nightmare, and Friday the Thirteenth, and. B and I were even discussing Nightmare, and I feel like my feelings may have changed on that, but that's a different discussion. But we covered the newest Halloween, but we've never covered one of the originals, and we're finally covering Friday the 13th from 1980. So it's a it's a big deal. Yeah. This, this is an exciting one. It is, and uh, it was originally titled A Long Night at Camp Blood. Thank God they changed that name. Yeah, and the origin of this is like one of probably my favorite trivias, and um, you know, like we said, part of why we love doing this podcast is because we learn a lot too, like looking into these films and we learn to appreciate them more, which we'll get into that as we discuss this film. But one of the things I discovered is that um, Cunningham, Sean Cunningham, the director of this film, is kind of like a marketing guru and a real... Um, appreci- yeah, super savvy and understands and appreciates the power of like a poster 
Um, he discusses it um, on Mick Garris's um, podcast, which is now um, produced Fangoria. by Fangoria. Um, it's postmortem with Mick Garris, and it recent. It's a very recent episode. I just listened to it. It was very good. Definitely check it out. Mick has a great way of talking to people. Um, but he was talking about like movie posters and how that would get people in. And so when the screenplay was written, um, they did casting and they got their budget, but they hadn't um, filmed anything yet. They wanted to work, you know, off of Halloween. So they decided to do like a holiday title. So they do Friday the 13th and to figure out if they could use it and if they weren't going to get sued, Cunningham took out a full page ad in Variety. Um, and it was what's now become the famous title sequence of Friday the 13th. It's the big Friday the 13th and the TH is in the three. Um, and it breaks through the glass and it says the most terrifying movie you will ever see. That post well one nobody sued them obviously because they used the title friday the 13th but it created a bidding war over the finished film um so it was an independent film that 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 then got bought by paramount for distribution um that's insane and it's something that's never happened before um halloween was an independent film um was not picked up uh horror especially at this time it's 1980 is not a genre that the big studios embraced or produced it's not like it is now it's not where you know barely is now well barely yeah Yeah. it's just i mean blumhouse is helping and then whoever sony i think did it yeah i think but like that's probably i mean i think it is now the biggest yeah but this is insane for the time Mm -hmm. and what makes my little designer heart so happy is a big reason that happened is over a poster mm-hmm. and over a design and copywriting that sold this film before it was even made and the fact that Cunningham like understood that uh, is so cool and makes him so much higher in my book of respected directors because I think a lot of people don't get it um, and don't get how powerful Um, your poster and your marketing is and how that's gonna you know uh, shape public opinion and all this crazy stuff so that's one of the coolest things I learned and the the poster for this film is also exceptional Mm -hmm. but I love that this ad and variety then ended up being the title sequence for the film as well yeah it's it's bonkers I mean like really like he they have this movie with this name that (laughs) is not great this alternate name and obviously they're cashing in on the halloween craze so it's a holiday close to holiday theme friday 13th it's the movie has made it a holiday for horror fans for sure but But it's a real more of a superstition yeah but like cashing in on that and just you know like really just taking a chance and like we said like you know halloween wasn't picked up even nightmare wasn't picked up it was a little indie studio like mm-hmm. nightmare turned them into something yeah um new line but like mm-hmm. it wasn't anything before that and so the fact that paramount came out and then they had the franchise for eight movies for eight installments yeah. before it finally switched over but like it's just crazy like a one-page ad variety launched a worldwide phenomenon and uh-huh. iconic character an eight movie deal for paramount like all this stuff from a poster the power of design guys. yeah there you go so it's a beautiful thing it is so in case you don't know what friday the 13th is about uh crystal lake's history of murder doesn't deter counselors from setting up a summer camp in the woodsy area 
Superstitious locals warn against it, but the fresh-faced young people, Jack, Alice, Phil, Marcy, and Ned, pay little heed to these old-timers. Then they find themselves stalked by a brutal killer. As they're slashed, shot, and stabbed, the counselors struggle to stay alive against a merciless opponent. Um, the budget was, as we mentioned, $550,000. It went on to make $59.8 million, which is, when adjusted for inflation, the highest out of all of the Friday movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, except for Freddy vs. Jason. Yeah. yeah, Freddy vs. Jason. But, um, I mean, it's Freddy vs. Jason. Right, which uh-huh. was drawing from both fan bases, so yeah. it makes sense that it made that much money. Um, but still, fucking bonkers. 1980? And, like, the last movie came out in 2009, and it still made more money when adjusted? Like, that's insane. Yeah, and... And the last one did really well. It did. The, where's our sequel? <laughs> We know where the sequel is. Yeah. It's just in production hell. Gone forever. Um, Still fairly well received for a slasher movie, especially Mm -hmm. for something from 1980. Uh, 63% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, It's the highest of the entire franchise with, I'll give you a guess. Is it Jason X or Jason Takes Manhattan at the lowest? Three, two, one. It's Jason Takes Manhattan at 8% on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm going to guess it's the boxing scene that really uh, sells it as being the... Man, that movie. Just stop it once they get to Manhattan, and then it's okay. It's okay when it's like the boat. On the boat? Like Jason takes a boat? Yeah. Again, like... Jason on a boat. It's a bottle episode. Give me the bottle episode, Jason on a boat. Yeah. And I'd be okay with it. But all the Manhattan stuff, it's so Literally the last time I watched it, when the boat got to Manhattan, we turned it off. I know this question has been asked, but why does Camp Crystal Lake have an outlet to the manhattan bay new york bay what what where the fuck is this place i don't know new jersey sure it's the mysteries of new jersey yeah that is a mystery of new jersey ian one of my writers he lives there ian is is there an outlet over there sure find it for us um the general consensus was rather quaint by today's standards friday the 13th still has its share of bloody surprises and a 70s holdover aesthetic to slightly compel um i said this last time you recorded this but i uh, i will reiterate um I don't think it's rather quaint by today's standards. I still think this movie is very effective and gory and bloody and violent and pretty brutal. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you and I discussed, like, it is a little more because there were no... The censors weren't as harsh on this movie. They didn't really know what they were dealing with at the time, and so they kind of got away with a lot more than they normally would have. And then after this movie came out and, like, one of... The review Cisco and Roger Ebert spent an entire episode yep. of their show berating it and other slashers, and it's kind of become like a famous thing um, to horror fans that we now know um, of this episode. Uh, they thought that it was senseless, that it made the audience root for the killer, that the final girl is misogynistic yeah. and damaging to society, and all these crazy things that aren't true. Um, <laughs> And, yeah, and so I think part of the reason why, like, part two um, had, you see, a much drawn back violence and gore is because of that reception after this one. And they're like, oh, wait, wait, no, you can't do that. Like, not this time. Isn't it fucking crazy? This is, like, the third movie I think we've covered where we have found a Siskel and Ebert review that literally, like, affected the movies. Mm Mm-hmm. Because the big one I can think of is Silent Night, Deadly Night. Yeah. Where they, like, pulled the movie from theaters, mm-hmm. essentially, because of the review they gave of it. Yeah. 
of like this evil depiction of Santa. Santa, yeah, and how it was dangerous to kids. And so yeah. it's just crazy to think like reviewers oh, used to have that. Well, much especially hold those Cisco two. Niebuhr, yeah. yeah, especially. I them. mean, I remember being a kid, and that was just like an exciting thing. Like you'd watch their show. Oh yeah, for sure. And, like find the two out, thumbs like, up, two yeah. thumbs down. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. That's and you look at any VHS box from the '90s, and if they reviewed it. And reviewed it well-ish, even if it was one star. Like, it was right there. Or yeah. one thumb. It was right there on the front of the box cover. Like, you looked for that. That was a huge endorsement. Yeah. They were very powerful. And I'm, I mean, I'm admittedly a huge Ebert fan. Because for the yeah. most part, I feel like he really appreciated blockbusters. Like, he knew how to separate, quote-unquote, Oscar-caliber movies from, like... I mean, he loved Anaconda and Spider-Man 2. Because he was like, oh, these are fun movies. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, so uh, Linda Gross of the L.A. Times um, and also Bill Von Maurer both kind of praised the direction, cinematography, score, and then, like, said, uh, you know, like, other than that, it was kind of, like, dull or, like, kind of by the numbers. Um, Linda Gross specifically called out the natural and appealing uh, performances, which is because they were teenagers that were friends with each yeah. other. That's so, why they were cast. Yeah. Cunningham was coming off of um, Last House on the Left. And wanted to do something, you know, just a little bit lighter. Yeah, have you all seen that movie? It's <laughs> fucked up. And so he, that was really, he literally was like, I don't care if they're the greatest actors. I want them to be likable and I want them to seem like they're really friends. And I think that's successful. Um, Absolutely, yeah. I do think it is like one of the, again, they're not great actors, but they're believably teenagers. Um, which I think is really important to movies like these. Mm-hmm. Um, especially like this is like the summer camp horror movie it's super vital um the poster you know i'm gonna let b talk on it because she is the graphic design major and i'm just uh, a guy with not great vision but um i will say i think it's great i love it i think it's i mean it's obviously very iconic but i think there's a lot to like about it like i've always enjoyed the friday the 13th poster i've just thought it did a really good job of like drawing you in and really representing what the movie is about from mm-hmm. from the picture yeah so we in this scenario we have a killer that you can't doesn't have an outfit doesn't have a mask um you can't reveal on the poster it's not like jason how jason becomes or michael or um ghost face where they you can put their mask on the on the poster so they do something really smart and they outline a body um, with a knife. So you still get your representation of your killer. Um, but then, and it's also sort of reminiscent of, you know, a chalk outline of a body. Um, so you play into that whole dead body thing. Within it is an illustration of summer camp. Um, it's woods and a, you know, a moon sky with clouds going over and it's really dark and moody and you know you see the counselors with the cabin there and it looks like i mean way more dense dense than in the um the actual film but it really gives you this depiction of something like spooky and it's got the tagline at the top that says they were warned they are doomed and on friday the 13th nothing will save them it's a great tagline um it's accurate to the film and actually happens in the film they were warned um nothing does save them mm-hmm. um so i really like that it's not like the scariest thing you'll ever see or you know which might work for like a quick tagline or something but on a poster where you're really wanting people are walking by and you want to sell the film 
something a little bit more uh, personalized to actual, the actual content. Um, then we have Friday the 13th, which is in like a hand-drawn logo type. So it would be, you know, now the equivalent super hand lettering is super popular. That's, and you see them on Instagram, like drawing logos mm-hmm. and stuff by hand. This is what this would have been. Um, and the knife that the body outline is holding is dripping blood and filling the 13, which is another great element. A lot of really subtle things that work really well together. Um, and then in red, which ties you down, a 24-hour nightmare of terror, which is your more generic tagline. Um, it's yeah. so adequate. The whole movie does take no, it is. in a day. It is. Um, and I like that they have both. And yeah, it's a super successful poster. It's mm-hmm. really, really well done. Um, there are 10 sequels. <laughs> uh, we did the tally. It ties Halloween now, now. since the reboot sequel thing. Whatever. That no one can still classify. Uh, but yeah, there's 10 fucking sequels to this movie. Yes. There's a lot. <laughs> yes. Part two, part three, final chapter, a new beginning, Jason lives, new blood, Jason takes Manhattan or a boat, the final... <laughs> Jason goes to hell, the final Friday, Jason X, Freddy vs. Jason, and then Friday the 13th, 2009. And yeah, that's our reboot in 09. Um, so what total? It's $383 million. Uh, that's the United States. So $464 million total worldwide. Um, is what these movies have made. Yeah, which is crazy. Um, a horror franchise has brought this and like lived through the kind of sag of the late 80s, early 90s. Um it is now officially the longest dry, uh, excuse me, the longest dry spell we've ever had without a Friday the Thirteenth movie, um, which is heartbreaking. Um, it is all tied up in litigation hell. Um, so unfortunately, like if you guys are not aware, basically like numerous parties are suing for the rights to Friday the Thirteenth, and that involves Paramount, and that involves Cunningham, and that involves the writer, and that involves some other party that jumped in on it it's it's been in legal hell since pretty much 09 like we're talking like a decade long battle at this point everything yeah everything that starts i mean if you're in tour news at all like the neca toys Mm -hmm. um just came out with a line and had the rights and then now they're getting a halt and decease on those and literally everything video game that came out that had people excited stopped no no longer allowed to update or play online so it's a lot of stuff hopefully it gets resolved and we get some new friday content it's been too long yeah um and it's funny too because b and i i mean we've always loved flashers um like pretty much since our inception in horror really and then when we started getting like really deep into it and we'd have these like hour-long conversations like we always were like friday's not our favorite like it's okay and we've both definitely decided like as we got older there's a lot of merit to them and we see a lot we appreciate them a lot more and like especially one through four we really like Mm -hmm. um and then i think it does like there's hit and miss pieces in five and six and then i don't really care for seven eight nine or ten no wait seven i think i like seven i still like it's eight nine and ten that for me are just like we're like real deep sag there um i personally love freddy versus jason um and then we love the reboot but yeah so like it's just funny that i never thought i'd care that it would be this long without a friday yeah. movie 
And now here I am, I'm like, I really would like some new Jason material. That'd be great. Yeah, I think at one point I was just like, well, fuck. I mean, I just want a slasher. So if it has to be Jason, give me Jason. And definitely since we started the podcast, um, which has almost been two years now, um, it's, I think that specifically has really brought me to the point where I'm like, no, I don't just want more slashers because we've gotten a few here and there. Mm -hmm. I want Jason. Mm -hmm. I genuinely want another Jason movie. Whatever incarnation, if it ignores the 2009 version, which I think it's going to, whatever, um, I would just really like to see him slashing some horny teenagers again. Well, and just think, too, how long it's been since we've had any of the icons. Like, we we are very fortunate we've had quite a bit of Michael because the Rob Zombie remakes and Mm -hmm. then Blum. But, like... Freddy at this point is going on 10 years, mm-hmm. right? The remake was 09, 2010, mm-hmm. somewhere on there. And then Ghostface at this point has been 10 years. Luckily, mm-hmm. we got the TV show in between, um, which is similar, but still different. I mean, season three is finally coming out, and it's back to the original mass, so we're going to get some original Ghostface. But, like, yeah, Jason and Freddy, man, it's been 10 years since yeah. we've had a Jason and Freddy, and, like, it's kind of kind of jonesing at this yeah. point. Um, Harry, uh, Harry Manfredini to the score. So if you go way, way back and listen to an episode on a movie called Slaughter High, we discussed Harry Manfredini. And B and I went back and listened to what we thought of the score on that movie. And uh, hmm, I will quote my mom and say, <laughs> like, we did not like that score at all. I think I can easily, hmm, I think it's my least favorite. It. I mean, it's definitely... It's, thinking about it right now it's definitely it's my, my least favorite, favorite in the in the sense that like it actually like i can remember it and it upsets me because there, yeah. there are movies that like i don't remember the fucking score for like yeah. i don't remember the score for like bloody mary whatever the hell that movie was but like the movie we can never remember the name yeah, of. yeah but blood, blood, blood night hatchets no blood night the legend of mary hatchet that's what it is Something um hatchets and blood but yeah slaughter high is like offensive because yeah. it's this like weird bit core just like that and on loop uh-huh. and then like anytime it's like leading into anything it's and it's so weird because that's not what this score is at fucking all no this is one of the most famous horror scores ever mm-hmm. and it and has it's legit good it's very good it's super suspenseful um, it builds a ton of dread. It's very quiet and subtle, but it gives our killer a theme, which is my favorite thing. Every killer should have a theme. Mm-hmm. Do you want to know why Jaws is scary? Because it has, because the shark has a theme. Mm-hmm. It cues you to go, wait, huh? Like, mm-hmm. what's happening? And that is what this movie does. The whatever thing i wish i could record be making the movements she is right now yeah it's scary <laughs> it is and scary yeah it cues you and it builds suspense in the fact that we have moments where we just have the score and we're not sure what's going to happen and then we have moments where we hear the theme to i mean pamela in this, in this film movie, yeah um, and we go, oh shit, like it's really real. Like something is going is to happen. there, yeah. And it, it builds it even more and uh, it's very extremely successful. It's weird because it's almost oxym- oxymoronic because it's like, or contradictory because it's like, oh, you're letting me know the killer's there so I shouldn't be scared anymore. But now you're like, 
fuck, I know the killer's there. Where is he or mm-hmm. she? So, like, what's going to happen? When are they popping out? What are they doing? Yeah. Um, and so, if you don't know, Manfredini did something really creative and smart. Um, 09, there was a documentary called His Name is Jason, and then he's also covered it in, like, Crystal Lake Memories, and it's it's well-known knowledge now, but for years and years and years, it was, like, this controversy. What, what are they saying? And it was often... Because um, it sounds like... Yeah. Which is the noise if you watch any movie where they are trying to freak someone out, like that's what they're going like this transcends genres. Like there are definitely numerous like comedies or teen dramas where like there's uh, there's like kids outside or like even adults outside and something's freaking them out and their friend is trying to be a funny asshole and going well, it finally came out. It's not ch 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 ha ha ha. It's k k k ma 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 because it's it's Pamela Voorhees doing the voice of her son Jason, where she where she's saying "kill them, mommy," and he took the kill and the mommy and took the k and the ma and then looped it and distorted the shit out of it and, and then, then got her theme. Yeah, and then made the score for the movie. That's insane. Yeah, and it's so smart. It is. Because it, like, really is such... I just love when you're wrapped up in your own movie like that. Mm -hmm. When you're like, this movie is so intrinsic to itself that the score is literally verbiage from the character. And now it's, again, iconic. Like, I mean, the only thing in horror that is similar is, like, maybe the Exorcist and Halloween theme. That's Mm it. And and Jaws. Um, But those three. Like, uh, this, but, like, the... Ma 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 is just everyone knows that you say that you know what movie that's from. Mm-hmm. Like I guarantee you make those noises, and the first image that comes to someone's mind is Jason, not Pamela, but Jason. Right. But yeah, like it's. I mean, it. Like B said, it is. It is the calling card of our killer. Mm-hmm. In audio form, which is, yeah, it's just which is it's awesome. so smart. Just like with Cunningham and his intelligence as far as marketing goes, like. Manfredini did the same thing with the score. Yeah, and speaking of Cunningham, I mean, he did direct this. Mm-hmm. Um, he was coming. He had done, done some sort of family, and they call him like white coat movies or something. Or he talks about it. He's on an episode of Shockwaves, um, like fifty four, I think it is, a while back, and they called him in the seventies like lab coat or white coat movies. Um, and they were basically like soft porn, but Sweet. with the like a doctor in a white coat, like sterile. I don't know. Um, it's an interesting interview. Check it out. Um, I'm horribly re saying it right now. But anywho, he had done a couple things. He was friends with Wes Craven. They did Last House on Left together. He produced it. Um, and he ended up, that did well and they said hey would you want to make another horror movie and he said yeah and then now we have friday the 13th um he produced house one and two um deep star six was another big um directorial movie which is more Um, of a sci-fi horror sci-fi horror yeah um he produced um Many of the other Friday movies, not all of them. Um, definitely the reboot. Yeah, he yeah. did the re- the reboot. Um, Freddy vs. Jason, definitely, because 
there's many quotes of him saying like how much he wanted that movie to happen. He was very like spearheaded that project. He'd wanted to do it for years and years and was very excited when they finally made it happen. Um, and he was involved. It wasn't like vanity tiles. He did have like minor involvement. He wasn't like an EP where he's making huge decisions, but mm-hmm. he did have um, some say in things, which I think is pretty cool. Um, yeah. It was written by Victor Miller, um, who kind of left film and the genre in general and went on to write for soaps, like right. some of the bigger, biggest ones, like One Life to Live, Another World, Guiding Light, General Hospital. Um, he was a head writer on a couple of those. So, so successful, just not in the genre. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like went on to have a very successful career. Um, and then horror legend, yeah. crazy um, makeup, special effects artist, um, actor, uh, director, man of all trades, Tom Savini, um, our royalty, mm-hmm, basically, mm-hmm. Um, did the makeup and uh, for this film. Um, he was just coming off Dawn of the Dead. So the Jason um, that we see, like that's a mask that he made. Um, him coming out of water, all of the effects from the kills in particular like the axe kill um which is spectacular is him um he's just so great and we love him yeah i mean if you know horror at all like the name tom savini is going to pop up he's just been involved in absolutely everything dawn of the dead maniac the burning the creep show just texas chainsaw massacre 2 yeah i mean he's just so important to the genre um and he's friday and what's great is he loves the genre he's a fan he goes to all the cons he like we said, he acts like he mm-hmm. he shows up all the time in Rodriguez movies. Like yeah. any chance he gets to be, in, he was in Feast, which was like a you know indie movie. Like he just really loves the genre. So, um, yeah, he he really is just involved in every facet of of horror. So, uh, that's a huge name to have on this mm-hmm. movie for sure. And I love that he went on and did the burning after this. And I mean, Cropsey's amazing. Yep. So that's Savini right there. Yep. I mean, all the kills in that movie yeah. are fucking amazing. So. Um, Betsy Palmer plays Mrs. Voorhees. She's kind of like our biggest name, really, in this uh-huh. in this movie. Um, she very... was famous for being on like a game show, like a she was a reoccurring guest on a game show, like Hollywood Squares or something. Um, yeah, something like that. It was like, like... it was one of those like thousand dollar pyramid or something. I'm yeah, sure. where they have like returning guests. Yeah. Um. So from 1953 to 01, she was active. 73 programs, but like again, very prolific, but just a lot of TV stuff. Um, you can feel it. Her performance is very daytime TV. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like a soap. Oh, she was like, wow, very attractive in mm-hmm. her younger age. Yeah. Wow. Like, oh, what yeah, a the game show. She was a panelist on the game show I've Got a Secret. So gotcha. that was like something she was super um, sort of known for. She was on everybody's TV for doing that. She chews some scenery in this movie. Yes. That's for darn sure. Um our final girl is Adrian King yeah. as Alice. Um, the big name to come out of this is Kevin Bacon. Mm-hmm. Um, he which, is our Johnny Depp yeah. in this film. Um, I mean, he has a like realistically a bit role, but like it's fun to see a very young, cute Kevin Bacon, yeah, shirtless, uh-huh. getting into sexual um, yeah. deviancy. Um, but he is definitely like our big, big one. Right. Um, which is funny because I think we get Crispin Glover a couple movies later. 
I mean, he's not like a heartthrob, but like a huge actor. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's always cool to go back and see those kind of things and like these movies. Everybody else, um, like I said, they were cast because they were friends. Um, they like all went to college together. They really didn't go on to do anything. Um, so we have Harry. Well, okay. We also have Harry Crosby the third as Bill Brown. That is Bing Crosby's son. Um, but he didn't, he's been in a few things here and there, like an episode of TV. Um, but not much, but being Crosby's son, that's yeah, pretty, that's, pretty cool. Yeah. Um, Janine Taylor as Marcy, Laurie Bartram as Brenda, Kevin Bacon as Jack, Mark Nelson as Ned, Robbie Morgan as Annie, and then Peter Brower as Steve Christie. Yeah. So a lot of unknowns and then they kind yeah. of stayed unknowns. Um, this is a teen scream. This is the teen scream. Mm-hmm. Um, like even like, I mean, Halloween's definitely a teen scream too, but like this kind of feels a little more like a teen scream. Um, it's also like kind of the origin of the summer camp slasher, um, which was definitely aped by the burning and then would go on to become a very prominent subgenre. Um, but yeah, this kind of is a, I mean, it's a tentpole, you know, like yeah. for both of those subgenres as well as the slasher genre itself. Um, Pamela Voorhees is our killer. So again, it's something uh, that for years and years and years, people were like, it's Jason, Jason, Jason. And Scream kind of brought to prominence like, no, remember the first movie is not Jason. It yeah. is Pamela. It is his mother. It is Mrs. Voorhees. So our killer's motive, she has one. Yeah. Um, she's avenging her son who... I mean, in this film, the only information we really get is that he was neglected. Yeah. He was not a good swimmer. He was swimming in the lake. The teens were partying and the camp counselors were partying and uh, having sex and not paying attention to him and he drowned. So because of them and their promiscuous behavior, uh, her son is now dead. Mm -hmm. And so the film opens up in 1958 when the camp reopens after Jason's death. I think that's what they allude to. Or no, 58 is the original. Oh, it's the original killing after so his death. She kills all the counselors, yep. and then the camp gets closed down. It's like 20 years um, later. And then when the campers come back, she's like, "No, no, no, you can't be up to this. You guys are bad kids." Yeah. Um, she starts killing them again. And she was a cook at the original yes. camp. That's like her tie-in to the camp and why Jason was there. Yes, because he was, uh, went to the camp because that's where she worked. Yeah, and so it's 21 like, years later, so it'd be 1979 is when the movie takes place. Yeah. So pretty close to when the movie actually yeah. came out. Probably when it was actually written. So she, I mean, great motive. She doesn't, I mean, we don't get a costume. We don't get a mask. This is... Which ends up being a benefit to this movie because we get POV shots because of it. Mm-hmm. Because it is a true... I have a hard time saying it's a true whodunit because they don't give us the opportunity. We don't meet her until the we, very end. Yeah, there's no way for us we, we to guess, guess who she is. No. But and, it's it's a mystery at least. Yes. Yeah. Um, And the, the POV shots and the way they're filmed uh, really complement this movie and really help build the suspense the whole way through and make it more impactful when she is revealed because mm-hmm. you're like, holy shit, wait, this was her and this, like, granny sweater? Like, this lady? This is the one who's been doing all this, like, merciless stuff? Well, and also, it's the only movie where we get these shots because mm-hmm. once they establish Jason, um, you know, Jason is iconic. He's marketable. 
you're not going to take the camera off someone who is a juggernaut and like people not only recognize but people enjoy rooting for so once they reveal jason especially in part three when they give him the mask that camera's never leaving him again so this is the only movie that really utilizes this, these pov shots and going back and watching it this time around again like you know i've seen this movie so many times probably a lot like probably like two or three times like serious sit downs and then so many times just in the background on my like general re rewatches but i've never really cared for the first one i was like no give me jason and rewatch like sitting down and really dedicating myself to watching this through again i was like i forgot i'm like oh these shots are fucking awesome mm -hmm. like these make the movie honestly like these pov shots like really set it apart from the rest of the series yeah. and really kind of elevate it it does um in a way that like and it's not it's different like i don't think it's better necessarily but it's like a it's very a different, different style yeah and i think that is a sign of the times as well like really being like a late 70s film um i think in particular the scene with annie really shines where mm -hmm. she's in the car and that's sort of our first interaction with the killer um the her fear and um S steve's then pov at mm -hmm. the end where he recognizes her oh marcy's pov with the axe of the face yeah it's it makes all of the kills that much better yeah they're very visceral raw like feel brutal um the iconic weapon is definitely a machete she uses numerous weapons but it definitely ends up being my iconic one it's what is ultimately used against her um she uses it a couple times then it will go on obviously to become like jason's very very iconic weapon um but we do have like kind of that main weapon um our body count is 10 counting our killer i believe only one or two are off screen um, yeah, Brenda okay. and Claudette are both killed off screen. Yeah, but so our first two kills. Aftermath scene for Brenda. Yeah. Actually, Ned's killed off screen too, right? No, he's killed and then found later, yeah. Yeah, he's stashed. Yeah. Yeah, our first two kills are part of the original killings. Mm -hmm. The counselors are singing Kumbaya and then decide to have some hanky-panky upstairs. God damn it. She said hanky panky the first time we recorded this, and I was like, really hanky panky? So I'm really glad you decided to keep it yeah. in. Now, yeah. Now, anytime we refer to sex on the show, it is strictly going to be referred to oh, as hanky panky. Can I call it bumping uglies? No. That's my favorite. Oh, the no. two beast, the two back beast. It's the hanky pink. The hanky pink. So they're upstairs doing the hanky pink or trying the to do it. hanky panky, and you turn yourself around. Oh, that's not what I'm saying. That's the hokey pokey. That got dirty. Jeez. <laughs> Do we have an explicit him. rating? <laughs> we should. I mean, we need to. Okay. Barry and Claudette yeah. do what they're doing. Yeah. And Barry gets knifed to the stomach, and Claudette is killed off screen, but throat slit. And I um, B found in her research that there are like photos of that happen. Like there's uh, um, behind the scenes photos. Yes. So they did that makeup. I guess they just didn't like the footage or yeah, maybe something or like that. Something yeah. happened, or they they cut it for time. One or... of the things they did have to cut. Who knows? Yeah, whoever knows with that stuff, it gets pretty weird. Like all the all the weird cuts that go into horror movies. Um, so we do fast forward to twenty one years later, and um, we kind of like so we meet Annie, who is like this very likable girl. She's very like charming, and like she's like outgoing, and she's friendly, and she's cute. Um, she's traveling like the town near Crystal Lake. I I don't know if the town is called Crystal Lake. I assume it must be, um, which is another thing I really like about this movie is like the town 
itself exists and like it feels like a real little town that exists outside of this camp area which becomes less and less as the movies go on i mean literally like we're in fucking manhattan by the eighth movie um and then we're in space by the tenth movie so um but it's like kind of just like this weird little backwoods town and they all know about camp blood um so when she says she's going there to be the cook like everyone kind of just stops what they're doing and they don't really want to talk to her and they don't really want to direct her because like even this town knows about i mean the killings at this point are not even an urban legend it's fact Mm -hmm. and again the further removed we get from this movie the more it becomes kind of like an urban legend but like in this it's like no they literally that, uh, remember happened. the killings yeah, yeah they were around and they keep telling her the place is cursed we're introduced to, like crazy ralph who um lasts into like the second movie and has become kind of like a horror culture icon and has then become a trope in other films yeah the harbinger the... and cabin mm-hmm. in the woods is definitely based on crazy ralph um but yeah so we meet annie and she's like on her way out to camp crystal lake so she's kind of our lead into the modern day um and then we're flashing back and forth between her making her journey out there and also meeting all the camp counselors who are already there. Um, so that's where we meet, like, um, Ned, Jack, Marcy, Brenda, Steve, and Bill. Yeah. Um, Steve is the owner. Yeah. Um, and he's, like, helping the counselors, like, get the place ready. And they make a few comments, like, oh, well, Annie should be here soon. Like, oh, and Alice. We meet Alice, our yeah. final girl. Yeah. Yeah, they do mention her, which I like. Yeah. Um, like, I think it's smart that they, and like, even when she's late, they're like, shouldn't she be here by now? And they're like, what yeah. are we going to cook? I guess, like, they're like, well, do we want, like, they even say, like, do you know how to cook anything? Right. And so they do, like, make reference to that, which is nice. She's um, not just this, like, random character. It's like, doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, these characters are what will become the most standard tropes in horror in mm-hmm. the slasher genre. We have our promiscuous couple. We have our virtuous final girl. We have our clown. We have our kind of sexy girl that's not in a couple. So she's a little bit of a, like, you know, like, also promiscuous, but, like, flirting with different people. Mm -hmm. We have our attractive lead, our male lead, who in this movie is a fucking creep. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't like Steve because he, like, weirdly hits on Alice and she's super not okay with it. And he still pursues it. Um, yeah, it's weird. We, we're not sure, like, what the intentions. Their conversation as he's, like, she's on a ladder. He's, yeah, she's on a ladder. And it like, sounds like something. they've been there for, like, a week before everyone else. Yeah, it's a really weird conversation that you can't quite understand what their relationship status is. Like, were they in a relationship? Does he want them to be in a relationship? But whether intentional or not, the vibes coming <laughs> off of alice are like oh my god like stop trying to pursue me i'm not into it yeah and it's it's so uncomfortable it's so like workplace relationship like uncomfortable like it it makes me so uncomfortable uh i don't like it at all but good thing they don't interact again the entire movie yeah steve's gone almost the entire movie yeah um but yeah so we meet these characters and like they are they're likable. They're fun to watch. They are cardboard cutout characters. Uh-huh. They are... And we know near nothing about them. Yeah, they're they're body count fodder. Like, that's what they are. They're given... They're assigned this trope, which wasn't a trope at the time, but it will become one. But they're assigned this label, essentially, that will go on to become the standard for the entire 1980s. And then the 90s will spend a lot of time kind of satirizing that idea of it. And then the 2000s will spend a lot of time going back to it or playing with it. Um, So, yeah, it's 
crazy to see like if you i encourage you if you go back and watch this like try to remind yourself this is where it started Mm -hmm. because halloween is a proto slasher and so Mm -hmm. is black christmas and so like while there is a little bit of groundwork laid for tropey stuff there there's a lot of blueprint for slasher in general in those movies but these specific tropes holy shit it's all friday man Mm -hmm. like friday laid that foundation and it did because it was so successful Mm -hmm. like if you look at this movie i think a lot of people are going like god what is even so special about it there's like your killer's not even interesting it's there's no jason like it created something big but what's so special about this movie that it's because it was an independent film that made 59 million dollars in 1980 um and not only that but the script just happened to lend itself to being just generic enough that you could insert new characters and a different holiday and have the same, you know, have a different movie. Yep. That worked the same way. Yep. And people discovered that. And here we are. Yeah, um, I mean, we'll go on. So um, Alice is not, like, a super interesting final girl. She does some stuff that's, like, pretty solid. I mean, she sets up some traps and she puts up mm-hmm. a good fight. Um, but, like, really, like, these characters, like, the plot does, doesn't exist. Like, this movie is a vessel for murder. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, like... I don't like, know. They play Monopoly and talk about some stuff I can't tell you. Yeah, there's no, like, times. little nuance of, like, Black Christmas where we're learning these backstories Mm-mm. of, like, these home lives or where we're learning, like, Michael and Dr. Loomis's relationship and, like, none of that. This movie is literally, like, here are these characters. They're doing these wacky teenage things B and I said on a prior episode that like a lot of 1980s movies start out feeling like a Porky's movie and like this is the same thing yeah. like I mean we literally get a character just without the weird sitcom score that often comes yeah. with I mean that character what he, I mean the joke character he's the one who calls someone a turkey or I think he dresses uh-huh. up like a turkey I don't know no he wears like a chief oh yeah head mask yeah. which like Offensive. we know not to do that anymore right <laughs> yeah. guys like yeah. We get it. It's the 80s. It's fine. Um, We know better now. Yes. Um, But, like, yeah, like, so these characters, like, don't don't exist for anything other than to lead us to how are they going to die? So, you know, Annie is our first one that's killed. While we're getting all this back and forth, she's still hitchhiking to the camp. She gets a ride in a Jeep from this unknown character. um, And, like, something starts to happen where she feels ultimately uncomfortable to the point where she literally jumps out of a moving vehicle. Um, she injures herself along the way and starts running through the woods and that's where we get this great pov like tracking shot um where she's eventually has her throat slit so annie is her first mo- quote unquote modern 1980 or 1979 kill of mm-hmm. the new counselors um again like i said there's just not a lot of plot like it's storming steve goes into town so the counselors are kind of forced inside um and they're kind of like adventuring around the camp a little bit exploring like there's a whole scene at the archery range um there's a scene over by the lake um there you know, sb said they're showing playing like strip po- poker or strip monopoly like poker no it's not that um, fancy ned so ned is like our jokester character and he actually sees like he sees who we find out is mrs war he's eventually go into a cabin and follows her in there and he also has his throat slit but that's off screen um, we won't, like, find him until later. Um, and then Jack and Marcy, that's uh, Kevin Bacon and um, 
where is her name janine taylor uh they're a promiscuous couple like and they're trying to find somewhere to hook up so they go into this cabin which ends up being like one of the more famous parts of the movie um ned is on the top bunk um and like hidden there which i think is also like a super effective slasher trend that we'll see for a very long time is like the we're aware of the body but they're not um and then they're having sex they're having hanky panky Mm -hmm. and marcy goes to the rules yeah marcy goes to the restroom and we get what has become one of the like most iconic kills in in the franchise which is the arrow through kevin bacon's neck from under the bed Mm-hmm. which is straight a knockoff of Bay of Blood. Mm-hmm. Like, hardcore. After we watched Bay Man, of Blood, we're like, I feel oh. so fancy now. I can be like, oh, yeah, this is this is actually based off of a giallo. Yeah, death of the Twitch news. Yes. Um, but it is. I mean, it's straight up. Like, <laughs> I know. Someone, the writers or the directors or Savini, someone was well, saw Bay, Bay of Blood, Blood. Which is why we've covered it, is a proto-slasher. Right. So the, these movies, uh, Bay of Blood and Black Christmas and Halloween, uh, helped create mm-hmm. slashers mm-hmm. Um, and helped uh, plant the seeds of ideas that were like, hmm, that's a really cool way to kill somebody. Let's base a movie on killing people in cool ways like this. Yep. Yeah. Um, and immediately after Jack, like, we see the killer kind of, like, go through the cabin to find marcy in the restroom and that's like a very blunt and brutal axe to the fucking face like straight up again props to savini for that uh that that effects work because it's super effective um and and looks really solid um brenda is her next to go she is also killed off screen she's kind of our like more like sexy character again um but she is just completely killed off screen she like goes to the archery range um and it's like implied that she's shot i believe um i can't remember exactly now Mm-mm-mm. i know yeah, her body I think is it's something to do with an arrow because they sort of foreshadowed it earlier when they were messing around in the archery yeah um and one almost hits her um yeah so by then uh steve has returned um, and he recognizes the killer. So which that's kind of our only clue to the, it's someone he would know, but again, like how would like we're not how would we know that it's Pamela, you know? Um, but like so it's kind of um yeah, so Steve, Bill and Alice are the only ones left at this point. Um Boom boom boom. I'm kinda where are we at? What do you mean? In the kills. Oh, so this is when Steve gets killed, um, Alice... Um, right, he recognizes the killer and, and he's yeah. stabbed, yeah. So Alice um, gets scared, sees what's going on. She barricades herself in one of the cabins. Um, then Brenda's body is thrown through the window, and that's how we discover she's dead. Um, that's sort of like our after kill. It's like, oh shit, she's dead. Um, Alice is... Uh, oh, that's after Bill dies, though. We did miss Bill. Oh. So, the yeah, the phone's disconnected. Bill goes to check it out, and he's he is shot to the door with arrows. That's oh, right. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that's when Alice gets yeah. to the main cabin, and Brenda's body is thrown yeah. through, which I think is a solid, that's a solid, like, kind of jump scare, too. Yeah. And then this is when um, Mrs. Voorhees mm-hmm. reveals herself. She shows so up in, like, odd. a car. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
Alice is like, oh, my God, there's somebody killing people. You've got to help me. Please help me. And she's just so calm. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, honey, it's okay. She's like, it's Let's, just the storm. It's just the storm. Let's go inside. And then she's like, yeah, we can go inside. You can see my friend dead, like, right here. And they go inside. And she's, and she's like, oh, no. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. And then puts on this, like, fake performance of, like, Oh, it's so terrible. This is happening. And then she starts telling her story of Jason. Yep. And goes into her monologue. And his name was Jason. Yeah. His, and today is his birthday. Yeah. Very famous line now. Yeah. Has been used a lot. Yeah. And. Uh, it's a great monologue. It's a super great monologue. It's it's just a great ending point to the 85 minutes at this point of mm-hmm. suspense that yeah. we've had the whole way through mm-hmm. and uh to get the reveal and to for it to be something this shocking where it's going to be an older woman mm-hmm. um doing all of these things and you're like holy shit you think she's here to like save her um she's starts getting erratic and uses like we mentioned earlier which is my favorite line in the film where she gets like her Jason like high pitched like Jason's talking through her and saying kill her mommy kill her mm-hmm. and then we get our final girl chasing oh that... it's so bad it's so clunky it's so clunky it's so poorly choreographed and it lasts I Too I need long. to look up yeah. what the actual runtime of it is but it feels like ten like realistically feels like ten minutes like for real it like, does like, like not hyperbole exaggerating if I was exaggerating it feels like half of the movie <laughs> is this chase scene it's so just and on both parts like they shouldn't have had um they shouldn't have had betsy palmer running through the woods because like she's just not built for action and uh, adrian king's not much better no and like it's just so a lot of weird swinging a lot of swinging and like yeah really slow many scenes oh it's so it sags it drags the movie down because like re-watching this i was like fuck this is a good ass movie yeah I was like, I don't, why, why don't I like this as much as the other ones? And then it gets to that part and like, oh, that's, that's a great monologue. And then it gets to the end and I'm like, that's why. Because this is why. It leaves, she's at the end, a, it leaves a sour taste. Yeah, because she ruins herself as a killer. All the POV stuff's amazing. Fantastic monologue. Everything after is terrible. Like, you're, she's not intimidating at all. She's, it's, it's hard, to, it's almost hard to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it's not it's not threatening like that's no. the thing is you never feel like alice is actually in trouble once pamela actually starts her like crusade against her well and that isn't an issue that she as a character she doesn't have to be this giant massive you know no, not supernatural at all. Like, character look at, to uh, be rebecca Gehart, yeah. urban legend yeah like but that's the thing it's like you they they let her have her erratic, insane monologue mm-hmm. and be crazy, and then that's it. Yep. They they took it off, and it's like, okay, that's it. This is what makes her scary, the fact that she's fucking nuts. Yeah. Is she physically, like, no. scary? No. And so you can't try and make a character that's not physically scary physically scary it's just not gonna happen play to the cards you have they should have leaned that into, she's crazy yeah into the mania yeah because that's why Gayheart's scary because yeah. like she used i mean she uses a gun like it's not mm-hmm. a scary weapon but it's her psychosis and it's like her erratic wild behavior that yeah. makes her a, an intimidating killer yes. um 
Yeah, so she's not the... It's not the best. But eventually, like, her and Alice get into a very clunky final battle um, where Mrs. Voorhees ends up decapitated. Alice does decapitate her with a machete. Um, And we lead into the ending of the movie because it's not the end, although everyone recalls it as the end of this very, like, dreamlike sequence. It's a very foggy lake. The cops are there. Alice is in this boat out in the middle of the lake. Her hand's kind of in the water with, like, this, you know, the classic... 80s era dream like sequence dreamy, romantic yeah, music. music and then one of the most impactful um important jump scares. jump scares in horror history jason popping out of the water yeah um and will ever will forever go down as like one of the like integral moments in a slasher and horror mm-hmm. movie it's not the end of the movie though which you always forget when yeah. you watch it because then you get to the hospital. I'm like, wait, is this a... I was watching my Blu-ray. And I'm like, wait, is this an added scene? Because I have the Blu-ray. And I'm like, wait, no, this is the real ending. She's in the hospital. And she's... They're telling her basically what happened. And she's like, what about the boy? The boy. What happened to the boy? And they're like, there is no boy in what the lake. boy? The boy. <laughs> Just like that. Just like that. Dead on. Yeah. Um, we actually have Adrian King here. That was yeah. her. The uh, boy. <laughs> And, yeah, so, like, it's funny because I did always, like, for some reason I thought it, like, freeze-framed on that Mm -hmm. ending. Nope, there's still the whole hospital thing, which leads into the sequel. Yeah, I mean, but him jumping out of the water also leads into a sequel. Yeah. No, it does. This, I guess, like... This really cements it, and it's, like... It's super ambiguous. Yeah, Yeah. because it's, like, was she imagining the boy? Does he exist? Is he actually in there? Who knows? Yes. Um, so it does set up for a sequel, which they obviously did because this movie made buku bucks. I mean, the sequel, I think they got it out within like two years, right? One. Yeah. 81. Fucking Christ. That's yeah. so fast, the turnaround on that. Um, what's your favorite kill in the movie? Um, my favorite kill is Marcy's death, um, the axe to the face, and I will 100% credit that to Savini's effects. And then Janine Taylor, the actress, um, her expression in that POV shot for the kill just sells it. And, like, genuinely creeped me out even watching it this time. Like, I, like, got a little shook up from it. Sometimes things don't need to be, like, super bloody or super, like... No, and I mean, there's blood, but yeah, it's not, but like, it's, like gu- it's not hatchet no, gushing. it feels more, like, blunt. Like, and it's, like, it's a savage. Mm-hmm. And, um, my favorite is... In, in tandem with yours, it's Jack, who is the boyfriend who gets killed right before her. The throat, um, the arrow through the throat. It's just, it's so legendary at this yeah. point. And I love seeing high-profile name actors die early in horror movies. Um, you know, Johnny Depp is, like, his death and nightmare is one of my favorites. So, like, Kevin mm-hmm. Bacon in this one. And again, to Savini, like, for for homaging Bay of Blood, but not straight copying it, and then setting a precedent. So, um it's it's a it's a really solid kill. In uh, House of Wax, um, which has Paris Hilton in it, uh, there was a running thing going, very misogynistic, and about oh yeah, Paris Hilton's in it. She dies on her knees, her favorite position. Um, so I would just like to be the opposite and say uh, both Kevin Bacon and Johnny Depp die in bed. Yeah, true. So. Yeah, that's true. Take that. What a bunch of sluts. Yeah. <laughs> Damn, slutty boys. Um, Too much hanky pink. Oh my god. I'm going to get you a shirt that says hanky panky. I'll wear it every day. <laughs> Talk. So, um, it's position the position in the horror landscape is it's it's legendary. It's iconic. It's it's any word I can put forward that just cements it as like 
integral to yeah. the slasher fandom. Mm-hmm. It, it transcends. And, I mean, it. Jason horror. became a pop culture along with Freddie, but like big pop culture icons where you would see them like on TV, and that's big for horror, and it's not something we've ever really had again. Um, we haven't had characters that were so ingrained in our pop culture since then. Right. Um, it was a very special and different time, and I was not alive for it, but I love to go back and see it and hear about people who did live through it. Um, but even now, even 10 years away from being from a movie, um, it's, I mean, he's still so important and still doesn't matter my, you know, 14-year-old niece who was four years old when the last one came out knows who Jason is. Yeah, and we know Jason's not in this other than, like, Kid Jason, but it sets up the franchise, and we'll talk about that more. So I forgot to mention, we are covering Friday Part 2 next week, so it won't be two weeks removed, just one, um, because we wanted to get those back-to-back, and we're very excited to talk about Jason. We understand, and so when we get to this point again, we'll probably just gush more about Jason, but like Friday the 13th is absolutely a classic slasher movie in every sense of the word it established the tropes that we know and love now and it's it is one of the most important slasher movies ever made period the end Mm -hmm. definitely um it is our 41st film so if you go to keepscreaming.com slash the dash list you can find all of our movies at the end of every episode we rank them Um, my bloody valentine from 1981 is still number one um, followed by black christmas which is 1974 and halloween from 2018 is number three rounding out the bottom of the list is april fool's day and girls night out um so we already know we're going to rank this because we ranked it in the last episode so yes. the discussion we had um is not going to be as um in depth but um we're ranking it third yeah so it is going to go after My Bloody Valentine and Black Christmas and before the new Halloween, I Know What You Did. Um, so It was easy top six. We knew that. Yes. Yeah. And what it really comes down to is, you know, I Know What You Did Last Summer is a better slasher than this movie. Mm-hmm. But I Know What You Did Last Summer takes this blueprint. And then does cooler things with it. Mm-hmm. But it does not exist without this film. Right. And because of the timing that it came out in 97, we have similar things to say about My Bloody Valentine, which is only a year later. Or The Burning, which or is burning. this movie, but yeah. better, like, realistically, as far as, like, a killer goes yeah. and, a, and, like, effects and stuff go. Yeah, but the difference between this and My Bloody Valentine, which... The reason why we can't see the justification in putting it before that is that My Bloody Valentine takes this blueprint and expands on it Mm -hmm. and then further establishes and cements these tropes. It makes it smarter. Makes it smarter and better and more interesting and gives you more value into your character. My Bloody Valentine, now that I look at it, like really does a good job of marrying the concepts of Friday the 13th and Halloween. Mm -hmm. Like it takes the most important aspects of both and mixes them together to craft like a true blueprint for the more cerebral slasher movie whereas this creates the blueprint for the more what would become the 1980s slasher movie mm-hmm. um, that ran rampant for a decade um, where my bloody valentine has more notes of like you said like 70s like black christmas and mm-hmm, halloween mm-hmm. and things that we see 
make it a better movie overall just in general not necessarily even as a slasher and help it sort of separate itself from the cut and paste mold right so we do yeah we put it at third especially just because like great i mean great direction by cunningham Mm -hmm. manfredini savini like all the people the poster is beautiful you know like there are some things that like you know, Mrs. Voorhees doesn't completely work, but the POV shots are great. Like, our yeah. final girl's not the best. Mm-hmm. So there are things that drag it down a little bit, like, drag it down to third. <laughs> like, right. it's not like they yeah. drag it down a lot. And, I mean, friggin' stiff competition with Black Christmas and by Bloody Valentine. Yeah, and I said this, too, on our last recording, but I just want to point out, Black, Va- Black Christmas came out in 1974. It was so ahead of the game. Every time I see that day, I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. I'm like, it's just, it's... It's crazy. I can't believe it. Yeah, um, and and we truly do believe that we have Friday the 13th because of Black Christmas. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, and, and Black Christmas and, yeah. and Halloween yeah. like are the reasons Friday mm-hmm. exists. Um, I mean, Halloween exists because of Black Christmas, so it's all... So it's they, all... They, they all, all play work into together. each other. Yeah. The slasher genre, like, I mean, horror in it itself, but, like, especially that 70s to, like, 90s era of, of slashers is just bouncing off each other so much. Um, yeah, so that is uh, Friday the 13th from 1980. We will be back in one week. Well, less than a week now because we're going to be one day removed from a week because um, our audio snafu. But we'll be back to cover Friday the 13th Part 2. Um, so that's the next episode we're covering. And until then, keep screaming. <laughs> <laughs>